the church, and I felt God lead me to Zechariah 2, and I feel to read the whole chapter or so. It says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of the men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has aroused from his holy habitation. And I felt the Holy Ghost so strongly read this, and I felt God speaking to me, saying, Up, Zion, escape, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, to be able to belong to that Jerusalem that he has chosen, that he has taken possession of, because he will again choose Jerusalem, and for all flesh to be silent, because the Lord he has aroused from his holy habitation. What struck me while she was reading Zechariah 2, he says, Ho Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them, so that they, the plunderers, will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And I think of what Paul says, the judgment that he's decreeing here is that those who harass Zion will themselves become the plunder of their slaves. And I think of how Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave. And the judgment that comes on those who harass Zion is that they will be taken advantage of. They will become plunder for their flesh. Their flesh, which should be their slave, will become their master. Amen. And that will be the judgment that the Lord has decreed against them. Amen. Lord. Take note of all those who stretch out their hands to touch the apple of your eye and make them the plunder of their slaves. In Jesus' name.
I want to share something that I felt like the Lord gave me at the beginning of this year. And I've kind of had it rumbling in my heart for weeks now. But I went back the last couple of days and this morning and was remembering what God had spoken to me. And when Camila stood up and began to speak that message from Zechariah, I felt the Lord confirming again in my heart. I think I shared with some of you at some point, I don't know, but I don't believe I shared with all of you, but I will remind you of it one way or the other. I had been reading about the period of time when the northern tribes of Israel were carried away captive by the king of Assyria. And they were carried away because of their apostasy, their rebellion, their sin against God. And at the same period of time, after Assyria had gone through, and you read in Second Kings, it's one of the more devastating passages. You ought to go read it in 17 verses 7 through 23 is the culmination where it says that these 10 tribes who should have fulfilled the promise of God that the prophet had given Jeroboam, they're carried away captive and that's the end of the story. And then Sennacherib begins to go through the cities of Judah. And it said that he was going through the cities of Judah and taking them. His plan is, okay, I've done with the majority up here, and now I'm going to do with this little problem minority kingdom down in the south, and I'm going to take it also. And they come and they besiege Jerusalem. And we know the story and I'm going to read a few high points. Rob Shekha comes and speaks to the children of Israel. Then Rob Shekha said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king. This is a sovereign over many vassal kingdoms. He's the great king. He's the, the big guy. The king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh, our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? 
Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master. Okay, I want to point out a couple things. See, he's a liar, the king of Assyria, and he always has been, and he still is today. Amen. He rules according to a different authority than the kingdom of God is ruled. We see that when God's people reject the gently flowing waters of the one sent by God, what happens? Well, they are inundated by the flood waters of Assyria, the God of this world. Amen. So he's always going to use a little double speak, and he's going to flim-flam his way through the argument and say, oh, you're trusting in Egypt. Well, it's true. If you trust in Egypt, he will go through your hand. But no, we're not trusting in Egypt. Amen. We're not putting our faith in all of the things that those who are of the world put their faith in. Amen. But if you say, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places Hezekiah has torn down? Was it Yahweh's high places that Hezekiah tore down? No, it was not. What Hezekiah tore down was an idolatrous, adulterous worship of Yahweh that an idolatrous apostate nation who was a message and a, a lesson to the church of our day. Amen. So whenever we go through tearing down high places that an idolatrous apostate church would raise up for itself to worship Yahweh at, amen, no, we're not tearing down Yahweh's high places. We're tearing down idolatry. We're tearing down the adulterous fusion of the things of God with the things of the world. And so Hezekiah did not tear down any high places of Yahweh. He tore down high places of idolatry and adultery with the world. Amen. And so he goes on down and he says, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 2,000 horses. Amen. If you can put riders on them, I know you're a big nothing. He defies the living God, so on and so forth. He says this, make peace with me and buy a present and come out to me and every one of you can eat of his own vine and everyone from his own fig tree, and every one of you can drink waters from his own cistern. You can have the best of all worlds. You can have a life of ease and comfort. Why stay in this place called Jerusalem? It's besieged. Why stay? Amen. I'll make everything so nice and easy and comfortable for you. Amen. Until I come, and take you away to a land like your own and a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards and a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. You know, this life that you're living of self-sacrifice and laying down your life and all this stuff, oh, it is so difficult. Amen. Why don't we just go somewhere else where it's very much like what you have, but you can do your own thing in your own way. Amen. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all 
delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Arad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim and Hena and Ivah? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Of course not, because Samaria was apostate. Amen. Samaria had sold out its worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, in the place called by his name, in the way that he defined it. Amen. And so it was out from under the covering of God. And so there was no covering that Yahweh could protect Samaria. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. Amen. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their robes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of Yahweh. Amen. Come, let us go into the house of Yahweh. Amen. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, so on and so forth. And who did he send them to? He sent them covered with sackcloth. Amen. To Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that Yahweh your God will hear all the words of this Rabshakeh, amen, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And then Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Amen. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then it goes on, and then it concludes like this. Amen. Then Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, the one who dwells, amen, between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. He's not reproaching doctrines and ideas of man. Amen. He's reproaching the living God. Truly, Yahweh 
The kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. It's true. You look at the church today, it has been laid waste by the king of Assyria. It has been laid waste because it goes along with the king of Assyria. Amen. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands. Wood and stone and ideas and doctrines of men. Amen. Therefore, they destroyed them. They were powerless. You see a church today that is powerless against the onslaught of the floodwaters of Assyria. That's what you're seeing. Amen. They were powerless because it's the work of men's hands. Amen. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Yahweh our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Yahweh God and you alone. And then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which Yahweh has spoken concerning him. And this is the message that the Lord gave me earlier this year. The virgin daughter of Zion has despised you and laughed you to scorn, O king of Assyria. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? By your messengers you have reproached Yahweh and said, By the magnitude, the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars, its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. But I know your dwelling place, your going out and your coming in, and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you, the daughter of Zion. You shall eat this year what such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs up from the same, and in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. And the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come in to this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it, 
by the way he came, by the same way shall he return. He shall not come into this city, says Yahweh, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Thank you, Jesus. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of Yahweh went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And then the people arose early in the morning, and there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. And then it says, Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherazer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped and went to the land of Ararat. Assyria will never come into this city as long as God's people stay faithful. Amen. As long as God's people tear down every high place. Amen. Tear down every idolatrous thing. Remove it. Amen. And wipe the ground with it. Amen. Tear it down. That's not worshiping Yahweh. That is idolatry. So as long as God's people clean house and keep it clean, amen, Assyria will not come into this city. Amen. For the Lord will defend it for his own name's sake. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So the, the call up, amen, leave it all. Leave all the stuff that's bound you. Leave it behind and get out. Amen. Because the Lord has something big in store. He's got something big planned and God help us. I want to be a part of it. Don't be deceived by the things that you hear. Amen. Don't be bothered by them. Amen. Don't be worried by them. Amen. Be called to arms by them. Not the arms of this world. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal but are mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Amen. Take your stand for the truth, and God will be glorified. While Brother Abraham was ministering, it really struck me how that Rob Shecha or Sennacherib or whoever it was thought that his past victories over the fake gods of other nations was precedent that he was going to defeat the city of Yahweh. Amen. But he was surprised when he found that they weren't leaning on that piercing reed of Egypt. They were standing firm in the Lord. Amen. That's what Jesus was talking about when he asked Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? And Simon did not answer from conclusions and he did not answer from the precepts of men nor from the pride of his own certainty, but he opened his mind and heart to receive a revelation from God and from conviction of the Holy Spirit he spoke and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus was blessed and Simon was blessed because he got something that came not from man nor from the high places of idolatry but came from my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus said, upon this rock I will build a church that the very power and authority and gates of hell will not prevail against. 
Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The devil is unaccustomed to encountering conviction that is descending from above. He is perfectly accustomed to encountering all the little strongholds of human will and overpowering them easily. But he is not accustomed to encountering a church that is built on the rock of conviction. Thank you, Jesus. I shared some things yesterday in the broadcast, and I'm going not to rehearse them, but to build on them, if I can read my notes. <laughs> in John 15, Jesus talks about abiding in the vine. And in that same passage, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we're just like all those nations that Sennacherib so easily conquered. But he says, he goes on in verse 19, and he says that the world is going to hate you. Sennacherib is going to hate you. Cain is going to hate you. Saul is going to hate you. You know, Saul, if ever there was schizophrenic conviction, it was Saul. He would encounter David, and David would speak the truth. Oh, I am so sorry. Have you ever encountered people like that? They get around the truth, and they're so wishy-washy. They're such vacillators that in the presence of truth, they're just, oh, I see it now. I've changed my viewpoint. I'm your friend and not your enemy. And then a few days later, you're hanging out in their palace and dodging spears as they throw more accusations your way. You ever encounter people like that? People whose word is yes, yes, and no, no. People who say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. They don't live by convictions. They live by the ever-changing whims of their flesh. And he said, the world is going to hate you. David knew what it meant to be hated by the world. Amen. Abel knew what it meant to be hated by the world, and Jesus knew what it meant. And in, in verse 19, Jesus says, if you belonged to the world, the world would love its own. But it hates you because you do not belong. Amen. I backed into my driveway yesterday and and ask myself again something I've asked myself repeatedly. I don't know if I've ever hated anybody. I don't, I'm not aware of ever hating anybody, really, really hating anybody. Oh, I've been upset at someone, and I've felt anger and hatred toward their sin, but I don't believe I've ever hated anybody, and, and yet I know I have been hated. Jesus says, if you belonged to the world, the world would love its own. And now you know why there's so much uniformity of thought, of lifestyle, of appearance. There's just so much uniformity in the world because the world loves its own. And if you're going to be different, you're going to be hated. John 15, 19. And you know what? It's not fun to be hated. <laughs> it hurts. And I sat in my driveway saying, why? Why do they hate us? Can we not live and let live? Amen. I'm not hating on them. Can we just let them go do their thing and prove it to us and we'll do our thing and prove it to ourselves? 
Is that not good enough? No. No, the world hates you because you're different and you testify that its deeds are evil. If everybody is having the same rotten fruit, if everybody is having the same unsuccess, then we're all okay. But if Abel somehow gets a hold of something and receives a blessing from God that Cain doesn't have, I don't like that, says the world. The world hates you because you testify that its deeds are evil, Jesus says. In John 17, he says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Guard them, Father, from the evil one. But then he says about us while praying to the Father. He tells the Father, God, the world hates them. In his high priestly prayer for our protection, he mentions the fact that we are not liked by the world. We are hated by the world because they are not of the world. Why, what would make the world love us? In 1 John 4, 5, he says, if we spoke according to the viewpoint of the world, the world would love us. But because we do not, the world hates us. I'm paraphrasing, you know the passage. Amen? Have you ever encountered people who live by certain common truisms, and I put those in scare quotes, who live by certain truisms as if they were gospel. And they all share them in common, okay? Everybody agrees about these truisms. And they're so universal, this unspoken gospel, that if you violate them, all that has to be done is for people to say that you violated the truism and everybody knows to hate you. Those truisms are the viewpoint of the world. Amen? All you have to do, if you're a worldling, is show the other worldlings that he doesn't live by our truisms. We have the naivete of opening the Bible and saying, but wait a minute, Jesus didn't live by your truisms. Look what he said here. And look what he did there. And Paul didn't live by your truisms. Look what he did. And Peter, look what he did. Oh, but their truisms aren't based in the Bible. Their truisms are based in this unspoken gospel of mutual congratulatory society, of humanism, where we all agree to not do certain things and to do certain things in order to protect our images in each other's eyes. You see, one of the truisms that the world lives by is that high places are permitted if those high places don't assert themselves as the exclusive will of God, right? So you can have high places to Yahweh. You can worship God on Wednesday and Sunday. You can go to church, but don't go to Jerusalem. Don't act like you have to leave the daughter of Babylon, as the sister read. You can have your religion. But don't let your religion exert any authority, any, con any authority based on conviction of the Word of God in our Babylon 
situation. Because our truism says that if you exert any authority, any finality of truth, that's coercion. That's fear-mongering. That's manipulation. Right? Amen. So all you have to do is prove that this people actually exerts the authority of God. And all of us who live by the common truisms mm, roll our eyes and go, I was afraid of that. Well, but no, no, speak to me from the Scripture. We know that you share this common belief, but talk to me from the Scripture. Where is this in your Bible? Oh, we don't, we don't need that. We don't need that. We all have a unified viewpoint. We speak as from the viewpoint of the world, and the world hears us. But the world doesn't hear you. How does it feel to be so misunderstood? We speak as from the viewpoint of the world, and the world hears us. They don't like what you have to say. They, they like what we have to say. And they go on persecuting us and loving each other because they all have the uniform perspective of the world. Amen? That truism, what does it do with, with Paul writing Timothy and saying, rebuke them sharply? Does that accord with that truism? What does it do when, when Jesus stands in a congregation and the people he's about to rebuke don't even say a word, but he discerns their thoughts and rebukes them for what he discerns their thinking in their hearts? And Jesus knew their thoughts and said, you hypocrites. The truism leaps up and says, Lord, 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 could you just give them a chance to, to make their case? You didn't even hear them out. Amen. The Bible shows the apostle Peter getting a strange question from a stranger named Simon the sorcerer who's just been baptized and just become a believer. The guy says, hey, I'd like the power to give people the Holy Ghost. Can you give it to me if I give you some money? And Peter says, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. And he pronounces a judgment on the man for what he perceived was behind the foolish but fairly innocuous, stupid question. Amen. He perceived and he spoke according to that. Oh, but you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. No, no, no. We have to, we have to know what our boundary lines are. We have to tolerate sin. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. If you loved this man and you knew that he was still caught in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity and you could see that those bonds were going to bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness and you really loved him, you wouldn't say anything. You would smile and invite him to church on Sunday, perhaps out to lunch, but you wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't say anything because we, we have this truism that has defined love, right? This truism says love is always affirmation. Hmm? Have you heard that truism? Love is always affirmation. I love you, right? So you see a child running toward the brink of the Grand Canyon. I love you. That's the loving thing to do, right? That's what the truism teaches us. But the Word of God says that if you see a brother heading toward his destruction, you should rebuke him. Jesus says in John 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Amen. But that's not what the truism teaches, is it? Amen. You see, we have a, a view of soteriology of salvation that makes room for sin. 
And so we see someone running toward the brink of the Grand Canyon, and we're like, well, that's okay. He's got a gospel trampoline at the bottom, and if he falls, he'll just bounce and be right back up at the top. Because we don't actually believe that the wages of sin is death. We believe they used to be death, but not anymore. Right? So if you don't believe that sin is going to destroy someone's life, going to destroy their relationships, and ultimately their relationship with God that is salvation, and you see someone sliding into self-deception, don't say anything. Don't rebuke him. Just remind him that you love him. Because that's what the truism says Christianity is. An endless affirmation of whatever your brother is doing. That's not what we do here. We actually believe that flesh is fallen and at enmity with God. We actually believe that the carnal mind cannot be reconciled to the mind of Christ. And so we have committed that carnal self to the grave. We have committed to make it our slave. And so if ever we see it starting to make the new man the slave, if ever we see the carnal man starting to be master again, love compels us to alert our brother, to speak truth in love. Amen? Speak the truth in love. The kindest thing you can do to someone is to speak the truth to them because you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. If you want to be an accomplice to bondage and you see someone caught in their self-deception, holler after them that you love them and do nothing more. But if you truly love them, not in word only, but in deed and truth, you're going to say, brother, something is happening to you. Something is going on and I've got to talk to you. Something has slipped into your thinking. This is the love that motivated the Apostle Paul when he wrote the Galatians and he said, you have been bewitched. What a compliment. What a compliment. A witch has come and cast an evil spell on you is basically what he's saying. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified? He said, you are desiring to become enslaved again. There was an urgency to Paul's words. But the truth that is shared in the high places of so-called Christianity, it has no urgency in it. It has no mandate to it. It has no authority in it. Remember when Jesus stood in the synagogue and began to speak truth? The people were shocked because he spoke as one having authority. They were accustomed to that false truism kind of speaking, right? That just made sure everybody was happy and comfortable with each other. And isn't it precious what God has done? And I preach the gospel to myself every day. And I fall off of cliffs counting on the fact that there's a trampoline at the bottom. And here Jesus stood, and he was different than all the scribes and Pharisees because he spoke as one having authority. And what did they detect in that authoritative word? They detected grace. They said, what gracious words he speaks. But in just a few moments, they were hating on that grace because the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It doesn't pat us... It doesn't pat us on the back while we plunge toward ungodliness. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. What does it say? Moses, the law came through Moses, but 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. True grace is truth that sets people free. Amen. Paul said, I commit you to the Lord Jesus and the the word of his grace in Acts when he left them. Amen. I commit you to the power and the word of his grace which is able to keep you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So we don't speak according to the viewpoint of the world. And it's time that we start questioning that viewpoint and making those who espouse it in the name of Christ defend it by the word of God. Isaiah 8 says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light of dawn in them. So when somebody comes and makes this big moral argument that has no scriptural basis, would you please question whether it's a truism that is shared by the viewpoint of the world or whether it is actually the word of his grace, the truth that makes men free. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And when you, when you live by a different viewpoint, you make them very mad. In Acts 22, Paul began to tell the Jews that because of their stubbornness, God was calling him to the Gentiles. And what did they say? They said, get this man away. He should not be allowed to live. He was speaking to religious people. He was speaking to the descendants of Abraham. He was speaking to those who received the law and the covenants and the temple worship and the sacrifices. He was speaking to Christians, so to speak, in a manner of speaking. And when he tells them, because you're stubborn and you refuse to hear the word of grace that would set you free, I am going somewhere else. They are so angry because the truism is there are no consequences to stubbornness. There are no consequences to deafness. There are no consequences to rebellion. That's the truism that the world lives by, right? So if you sit there and you just keep listening, keep hearing but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, keep nodding but never actually changing your life to obey, then Paul ought to be happy with you. And if Paul says, I'm done with this, I'm severing myself from this relationship, and I'm going somewhere else, then Paul is a tyrant. That's what the truism teaches, right? Paul is an authoritarian. And you know what they said when he brought that discipline to them and said, I'm not going to be a part of your congregation anymore. You're not going to be part of my ministry anymore. They said, this man should not be permitted to live. As long as he was debating with them, as long as he was conversing with them, talking scripture and treating them like everything was okay, they were willing to tolerate him as soon as he brought a consequence and he said, this is the truth and you're going to conform your life to it or we're going to part ways. They said, this man should not be permitted to live. You know what? 99% of the people who hate us, hate us because we brought that consequence in their life. We said, you're going to treat this as the Word of God or you're going to show us from the Scripture and the Spirit that it is not the Word of God and you're going to bring that Word to us. But one way or the other, we're not going to play games anymore. 
you're going to conform your life to the truth or you're going to show us it's not the truth, but we're not going to sit here and nod at each other and pretend that we're all of the same viewpoint. And when that came, they got offended. That finality, that choose ye this day sort of attitude, right? Amen. Isn't that what Joshua said? Isn't that what Elijah said? On the day when he tore down some more of the high places, amen. Isn't that what he said? He asked the people, if Yahweh is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. Would you just go ahead and make a choice? Would you just go ahead and call a spade a spade? Love the world and the things of the world and reject the love of the Father or choose the Father and be done with the world. But please just choose ye this day. And they answered him not a word. Amen. Because they knew they didn't want to make a decision. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, Paul made them make that decision, and they said, this man ought not to live. You know, it's, a, it's good that we live in America. If we were hanging around 500 years ago, I guarantee you I wouldn't be standing here right now. I'd be burning at the stake. The ferocity of resentment and hatred and bitterness that exists out there right now towards some of us, if they could, they would say the same things that they said to Paul. This man should not be permitted to live. There is a hatred that comes from the world when we do not copt to its viewpoint, its truisms, that cannot be underestimated. Amen. Jesus said in Luke 21, you will be hated by all men. Why? Why will we be hated by all men? For his namesake. And what does his name denote? authority. He said, if, I, if one comes in his own name, him you will receive. There's good ideas. There's plans. There's programs. Right? But he said, because I come in the name that is the authority of another, you will not receive me. In John 7, he says, why are you trying to kill me? And they said, you must have a demon because nobody's trying to kill you. They were trying to kill him. They were already yielding to that hatred that he was different, that he didn't share their viewpoint. And every time he would try to get them to base their viewpoint in the Word of God, and they didn't have to do that because they all shared it in common. That was the mob rule. Amen. And then they just had to scream out all the louder, crucify him. He makes himself an enemy of Caesar. If you preserve his life, you are an enemy of Caesar. Oh, okay, well, let's, let's match viewpoints here. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We do not speak as from the viewpoint of the world. And Sennacherib makes sense to others like him who live by his same truisms. But he has not encountered the church that is built on the rock, which the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Amen. And if we stand not in the hubris of our own carnal certainty, but if we stand in the conviction of spirit-revealed truth, the gates of hell will not prevail against this. Amen. We will go from strength to strength, and we will appear before God in Zion. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen, Lord. We're going to be hated, he says, by all men for my name's sake. Amen. 
we're going to be loved. What does it say in Revelations? They will know that I have loved them. Why? Because they did not deny my name. So if we keep his name and we keep his authority, the whole world hates us. And when the whole world hates us, if we don't deny that name and authority, there is one who loves us. And we choose his affection and his acceptance and his love above all the acceptance of all the world. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I feel the Holy Ghost. Amen. Lord, we want to be acceptable in your eyes. We want to feel your favor like Abel felt it and so much more. Amen. We want to know that you have loved us and don't we? Amen. We have been loved by the Lord. Amen. And there is more of his agape, of his gracious love that he wants to reveal to us yet. Amen. And it's going to come by deposits, just like his grace comes as we hold to his name, as we hold to that rock that is immovable. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I just want to read you one verse that I read this morning. This is Jesus in Luke 6. Blessed are you when men hate you. What a statement. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, I came here a little over three years ago with my family, and after having uh, divested the Connecticut group, when I came here, I had a pretty high opinion of myself. Uh, and I felt that perhaps maybe I just needed a little repolishing. But what God revealed to me was I needed a lot of demolishing. And so a lot of these high lofty things that exalted themselves against really the knowledge of the living God, I had to aggressively begin to tear down. And I, I you know, after reading Jeremiah 1, sometimes it's a burn, sometimes it's a tear down. But it starts out with to root out. And there's a lot of things we just can't passively sit in our you know, proverbial tree stand. We have to go and root it out. But we can root it out with the agape love and authority of God for each one of our lives. I see that banner there, and it speaks to me. And I keep hearing the first part of it is, if you continue in my word, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's if you continue, and it's not if you continue till you're 25. It's not if you continue until you're 50. In my case, it's not if you continue till you're 59. It's when you stop continuing, you start slipping back into a bondage. Amen. And I'm so glad that it's the love of God, it's the agape of God drawing us out of Philadelphia, and God's rock. Oh, God. I got to the store. The Assyrian and Armenian is a 
unmasked around us. Amen. But the word of God is this. It's not coming into this city. It's not coming into this heart. What's flesh is flesh. What is spirit belongs to God. It's God's house. And it has no place in it. And I'm so thankful to be called to be loved with God enough to be a part of this work. It's a, the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced in my life. And I just feel the zeal of God and the wind of the Spirit filling my sails. And I'm so glad to be 